Well, again, I'm lucky to be able to preach from a text that is at the same time widely known and widely misunderstood. I say I'm lucky because I'm always up for knocking down some stereotypes and messing with people's assumptions. Because I think we are wiser people if we are willing to question assumed meanings and look more deeply and thoughtfully at something. That's true for a lot of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, which is most of our Bible. In fact, more than three-fourths of the pages in your Bible, if you use a Bible made of paper, are what we often call the Old Testament. They are routinely ignored, as Mariah implied, by many Christian readers, except for the Psalms, because they are either hard to read and understand, or we assume that they were made obsolete by Jesus. Just to make sure we didn't make that mistake today, we read Matthew 5:17, where Jesus said he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I like referring to the first 75% of our Bible as the Hebrew Bible. For one thing, it names its original language and culture, Plus, there's nothing in that name to imply that it's outdated, that it's not our Bible anymore. Yes, the first part of the Bible is old chronologically, but it's not old like milk gets old. It's not expired or sour. It is still fresh and life-giving. It still speaks to us and to our times. These writings are sacred to us because they were sacred to Jesus. For that matter, they are still the sacred writings for Jewish people who still hold them as precious and read them with reverence. But like all of our Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what is written needs to be understood in its own context, on its own terms, and only then brought into our context, interpreted wisely, and applied in a way that fits our situation. We misunderstand the Ten Commandments today because we don't adequately deal with their original context. We lift them out of the story and make them into a list to be memorized and recited or etched onto plaques and monuments We hang them on walls or place them, controversially, in public places like courtrooms or schoolhouses. They can often survive there as long as they are viewed merely as an important relic of some universal legal code alongside other historic legal codes. So as long as they exist only as a list and not as a story, we easily make them into either a legalistic and restrictive code of ethics imposed on us or as a tame historical artifact with very little impact. So when I preach to people socialized to read Exodus 20 as a list and I signal that our topic is uh, commandments and the law, I expect some people will just check out. I thought we had gotten over rules-based Christianity. 
And I expect others will eagerly dig in for the wrong reasons. About time we talk about some specific sins, the do's and don'ts of Christianity. So now, let's help this list find its story again. This is, after all, a narrative lectionary. Scripture is more likely to change us if we read it as story and find ourselves in the story. This story continues the story of last Sunday, where the Hebrew people were liberated from hundreds of years of slavery and dehumanization in Egypt. Last week, we saw God as passionate for the liberation of all people who are oppressed. Today, not long after the crossing of the Red Sea, God is making a new covenant with them at Mount Sinai. It may not be your experience, but you can imagine the multi-generational injuries and collective trauma of the Hebrew people after what they and their ancestors endured in Egypt. It's not entirely unlike the multi-generational impact that slavery has had on American society and well-being. We are all still dealing with the painful results of that collective trauma 150 years later. For the Israelites, it was maybe months. According to the biblical story, this is a group of many thousands of traumatized people wandering and trying to find their way in a wilderness, a geographical one, and a psychological and social and spiritual wilderness. They endured generations in Egypt where the constant message was, you are not worthy, you are not even human. And they have only been out of that environment for a relatively short time. That, friends, is the story behind these so-called Ten Commandments. We must read them with that story in mind. These are not commandments aimed at reigning in an unruly mob of wicked and condemned sinners who need to straighten up and get their act together to avoid damnation. No, these words are a roadmap for a flourishing life for a traumatized community. They were given by the God who created them and loves them dearly and wants them to thrive. These words were a healing gift. These words are meant to counteract and repair the harm brought by the oppressive messages that have defined the lives of the Hebrews up to that point. So how does that realization change how we read these so-called Ten Commandments? 
More often than not, it's Christians who make this into a list of negative commands to constrain our wickedness. And it's the Jewish readers of this text to this day who celebrate this law as a precious gift that they were given. It's the Jews who still carry the Torah scroll around the synagogue, dancing with it and kissing it before it is read. And, interestingly, ponder this. The Jewish way of numbering the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, is different than the Christian way. Same text, different numbering system. For Christians, number one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two is, you shall not make for yourselves any idols. But Jews combine those and make it their number two. In the Jewish list, number one is not even a commandment. It is these precious words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. That's number one. It's no coincidence, I think, that Christians call that a preamble and then make the Ten Commandments after it the important stuff. And Jews start with a word from Yahweh that connects them to their story, where they came from. It establishes the reason why the words that follow are such a beautiful and precious gift. So, what if we started with the story instead of the list? What if we made it a point to remind ourselves every time that the giver of these words is our loving God who brings people out of bondage. When we start with that story, the rest of the words hold a richer meaning and we hear them differently. When we hear a word coming from the great liberator, you shall have no other gods before me, we do not hear a heavy new rule laid on our shoulders. We hear God liberates us from a life of being pulled in opposite directions. When we hear a word from our liberator saying, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, we hear God liberates us from the trivial and profane and from being robbed of the beauty of the sacred. When we hear a word from our liberator saying, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, we remember the slavery we lived under and we say, God liberates us from a life of compulsive busyness of constant work, of anxious and life-draining accumulation. When our liberator says, honor your father and mother, we hear God liberates us from a shallow life without roots, of not knowing where we came from or if we are unconditionally loved. When our liberator says, 
you shall not kill. We hear God liberates us from the death trap of escalating violence. When our liberator says, you shall not commit adultery, we hear God liberates us from a lack of commitment in our most intimate human relationships. When our liberator says, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's property, we hear God liberates us from a lonely and bankrupt life where feeding our personal desires takes precedence over having a rich relational life of mutuality and community. These 10 words are not a sterile list of commands from on high delivered by an angry God trying to whip people into shape. They are a gift of love given by the great liberator. A God who wants to free us from bondage and slavery and oppression of every kind. A God who wants to free us to enter into a community of love and freedom and justice. Into a free and right relationship with God and with each other. The Ten Commandments are a gracious gift of love. They actually can be objects of our affection. They can taste sweeter than honey. At least, so says Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul, it rejoices the heart. The commandments of the Lord are true, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. If God's moral imperative on our lives is not experienced as invitational and compelling and life-giving and satisfying, then that's our fault, not God's. God's approach to us is that of a wooing lover, inviting us into freedom and flourishing. Let's say yes to that kind of God. And let's offer now a communal confession to that God Read together what's in your bulletin as the confession and also on the screens. God who loves us and freed us, we confess we often take for granted your love for us and your passion for our freedom. You brought us out of bondage and want us to flourish. We mistake your commandments for rules that constrict and confine rather than gifts that liberate us from all that diminishes our humanity. You brought us out of bondage and want us to flourish. We worship you, O Lord our God, 
who brought us out of the land of all that binds us. God still loves us and frees us. Let us walk in the way of freedom and flourishing. Amen.